Wonderful Mario Mendez, such a, a loyal listener and always a great contributor, and of course the the brother of the great Mike Mendez, who in my opinion should be directing stuff like the Jurassic World sequel or the Godzilla sequel, which just lost. Uh, no, Gareth Edwards. Gareth Edwards He's is the director. So uh, yeah, I uh, I'm officially lobbying for uh, for uh, the, for the Mendez touch to make its way over to the. Uh, that sounds to, to dirty. The, to, thank you, doesn't it? Anyway, so thank you, Mario. Uh, hoping your brother gets uh, one of those big studio shots at some point because he'd do a much better job. He really would do a much better job. He should be on the Godzilla on short list at this point. Anyway, so quick question, uh, quick, quick answers to the questions. Uh, the intros, I still have to finish producing them. That's uh, Wade's it, fault, by the way. It is. It's entirely my fault. I've got a toddler. I've had like uh, you know uh, film festival chores at Colcoa, and, and I don't I, know how to do it. And then Mark doesn't know how to do it. And then <laughs> I've got and then I've got the uh, I've got uh, you know film week radio this week, and I got movies up there coming out of my ears left and right. So I'm I just have not set the time aside to do it. But I will do it uh, after the show. That is a promise. I will get it you done. You promised that earlier. You, you know what? I actually have some time now. My whole incredible 
ridiculous uh, streak of April and May stuff. All my chores are finally uh, thinning out a little bit. Plus, I had the I had the, the I got sideswiped by the crazy lady in the in the car. Yeah, what happened with that? I'm still trying. To, the cops can't find her. They have no way of tracking uh, tracking her down. I talked honestly. I kid you not. Well, anyway, let me let me finish answering Mike's questions, uh, Mario's questions. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, Hush, really interesting. We should check that out. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff on Amazon and Netflix that we really we just don't have a chance to get to. And the uh, the website, of course, the Cine Gods website is still coming. It's just a bit of matter. Fault. Again, my, my fault for putting it on ice because of other commitments. But that's actually going to go into uh, Overdrive this week. Um, yes. It, it will. And you will be, you'll be uh, on the email chain that will... Uh, you, you get to drive this thing this week because I'm Well, gonna, if you drive, it'll take forever. It'll take forever. So I I'm stuck back. I will email the web designer a hundred yes. times a day and, and direct them in the right uh, way. Brilliant. I'm going to turn that whole monster over to you this week. This will... And, and this by will, the way, we can say this too. Is there, any, is there any, uh, anything you'd like to see oh, yeah, yeah, for on sure. the website? Yeah. Like, you know, Wade and I are launching a synagogue's website the moment Wade gets off his ass and, 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 yeah. and forwards me the name of the person we've used to uh, <laughs> design the damn thing. And we're figuring out, you know, what we'd like to see yeah. on it. Obviously, the podcast will be on it. Yeah. Some of uh, our writings will be on it. New writings, maybe old writings. And that's and that was the other thing, which is that yes, all of this stuff that we don't get to really deal with on the on the podcast, that we'll we'll begin to be able to sort of explore that and bring other writers on and uh, and let that become a part of the overall kind of umbrella world that we're going to have on the site. So there will be reviews and blogs and uh, and tech reviews and all kinds of other interesting things uh, over time. So we will uh, you know steadily grow this. And by all means, email us gods at digigods.com and let us know. What functions and, f- and functionality and features on the site you uh, you want to see? No naked pictures of Wade. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not interested. Nobody's interested. I will put that behind a firewall. How about that? <laughs> behind a paywall. I'll put it behind a paywall. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's no That's amount of money is. people would pay. Yeah. For that. In no. fact, I will pay you not to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, did we answer his question? Uh, yes, we did. I yes, think we, we answered did. it. So, yes. So, the the intros and and yes, Mario, you wrote some awesome intros, and uh, we are gonna we're gonna get those suckers up there. It's Wait, just. Fault. A, I have a toddler. It, I, do have I mentioned that I'm Pink Flamingo? Have I mentioned this? You have not. Okay, I'm Pink Flamingo now. Because her newest thing, we, Peppa Pig, still still a fan. Shaun the Sheep, still a fan. She's still a fan of all this stuff. But she has discovered uh, Sarah and Duck, which is another British show. It's all British. That's why my daughter says water and not water. See, that's not good. It, it's n- not good. Not good? No, she's not British. But she says water. Yeah, but, you know, like Madonna. Remember, remember when Madonna <laughs> was affecting a British accent? We yeah. all made fun of her? Yeah. Don't, don't, don't do that to her. Well, you know what? Christy reinforces it. Christy says water so that she keeps saying it because she thinks it's cute. Uh, then what I would do is I would go. Here's the thing. You're, you're, you're very tentologically at yes. I would go in and I would uh, ADR all of the Peppa Pigs <laughs> so that it is all American accents. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. Well, anyway, Have so. Harvey Firestein. She loves uh, she loves Sarah and Duck, which is about a little girl named Sarah and her duck. Um, but they also have a friend named John who has a pet pink flamingo. So somehow um, now she runs around the house quacking because she's a duck. And mommy is Sarah, and somehow for whatever reason I am pink flamingo. So uh, we went from calling me daddy to calling me Wade, which was really which is still kind of a thing. But for substantial portions of the day, I am referred to as pink flamingo. So you may refer to me as Pink Flamingo if you wish. I will not. That, you know what? That'll be your name uh, behind the paywall <laughs> where your nude photos are. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, real quickly, also off the top, and, and Mario, thank you again for the question. Others who want to send in Vox boxes, uh, gods at digigods.com, gods at digigods.com. Uh, send us emails, whatever you want. Uh, Greatest 100 Matches is a book from uh, WWE, and uh, it you know we don't often talk about books, but I uh, I just felt like I know a lot of our fans are into wrestling, and this is actually kind of a nice book. This is from the uh, DK people uh, who do you know a lot of these nonfiction kind of coffee table books, and uh, it's nice. It's got a lot of you know full color stuff, and if you're really into wrestling, this is one that should be right on your uh, on your coffee table so that all of your guests can. Read up on the 100 Greatest Matches. All right. Um, Mark, shall we? We got a lot of docs. We got a lot of docs to cover. So uh, let's dive through this stack of documentaries that has sort of uh, piled up over a while. I want to start with That's Sexploitation, which um, is uh, very near and dear to my heart because, of course, Ray, who was here some weeks ago uh, in a weird surrogate mode, uh, Ray and I made a documentary over a decade ago called Schlock, the Secret History of American Movies and uh, interviewed a lot of these people, like David Friedman and a lot of people who were really, you know, Doris Wishman, who were central to the whole sexploitation era. And uh, we got a, a lot of really great cooperation from Something Weird, uh, something weird video was really wonderful to us. They didn't charge us for you know per minute or per second for using clips. There was a flat fee deal. We couldn't have made the documentary otherwise because most of these films are in the Something Weird library, and uh, they gave us uh, you know basically uh, ex, you know a flat fee, full access to all their material for a flat amount, and it was wonderful. It enabled us to make the movie. And so we are uh, endlessly uh, indebted to Mike Vraney over there for uh, doing that for us. Anyway, Mike Vraney uh, of Something Weird uh, produced this. So this is sort of his end of it, written and directed and edited by Frank Hennenlotter. I, I'm not going to say that our film is better. I'm not going to say that this film is better. It's different. And uh, the two really go together, and there's more than you can say about this particular era and these particular films than can be summed up even in two films. It really is uh, a, a totality that needs to be addressed in a scholarly fashion, and all of these films are part and parcel of the story and uh, all different perspectives. And so I would say this is a lovely Blu-ray, and uh, I really do highly recommend it. David Friedman, of course, is all over this thing. And uh, you get a uh, commentary with uh, Lisa Petrucci from Something Weird and uh, Frank Hennenlotter, the director, and it's, uh, it's really, really good. Uh, now, I should also point out that Mike Vraney, who produced it, and who, of course, was the brain behind Something Weird Video and with whom we met when we uh, made the deal, he has since passed on. Uh, so uh, Vraney is, was not able to do the commentary and to sort of uh, contribute his perspective on this. But it would not have been possible without him. So, you know, if you all... Sexploitation films uh, specifically are the subject of this. And... Um, the uh, you know you don't you don't get into obviously uh, slasher films and gore films and a lot of the other things that we touched on. This is very very specifically the the sexploitation era, but it is uh, it is a really really it, don't don't sell it short. It's not it doesn't treat it cheap. It doesn't treat it like uh, you know some big uh, comic joke from the '60s. It treats it as it deserves to be treated, which is is a genuinely fascinating and vital piece of American film history worth considering definitely something that isn't talked about enough so that's sexploitation from severin by all means check it out 
way, there's a uh, an artist named Matthew Barney, and uh, he's married to Bjork. They're weird, both of them. They are weird. Next I, film, he he did a film uh, that actually I saw called Drawing Restraint Nine, oh and in this film, it takes place on this Japanese whaling so vessel, and there's like. 45,000 pounds of petroleum jelly so on this vessel, and he's using it for an art project. It's a bizarre, so bizarre. bizarre movie. He's a weird man. Because Matthew Barney is a bizarre, weird man. It's a very and weird if you want to get a sense of what Matthew Barney is really like, I would definitely check out on DVD No Restraint, which is a film by Alison Chernick. And um, it is all about the creation of Drawing Restraint 9 and how strange Barney is and how we went to Japan and collaborated with Bjork, yeah. and they created this gigantic thing that it's involved weird. the whaling vessel and Japanese it's rituals weird. and and tens of thousands of pounds of petroleum jelly, and you really get a sense of uh, one of the most iconoclastic, unique, uh, singular Freak. artists really of our time. Yeah, who, Freak. you know, there was actually a retrospective of his stuff in, in L.A. recently, and. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Barney is a very, very strange man, and if you think that, you know, like, whoever you could say is weird, like, wh- whatever artist you could David name, Lynch. David, no. Matthew Barney. No, so far beyond. Matthew Barney makes David Lynch look look like Disney. I, I, I had to review a Matthew Barney film once with uh, Andy Klein on Film Week, and all I remember from that very strange thing, I, it had something to do with, it was a some vehicle that he created or something, but basically... Uh, a substantial portion of the film consists of footage of him as he crawls into some space underneath, and I'm barely able to recall this because I was so horrified. He crawls into some space underneath this vehicle and basically um, uh, stimulates his, well, let's put it this way. He stimulates his shaft by rubbing it on the crankshaft. How's that? This guy... It is... is, You're watching this, and I I think there was clay or paper mache involved. I can't remember. It was... It's not pornography. It's No, it's weird performance performance art stuff. And you just look at this and you just think, I don't don't know where this comes from, and I don't know where it's going, and I really don't... Well, that's the thing. He is... For some reason, at one point, he became so obsessed with testicles that he wound up with a five-film cycle all about how much... And again, it's not pornographic. No. It's just... He's just a really unique... God, oh, that's artist. a way. That's one way of putting it. I mean, imagine being in that house with him. You know what? He and Bjork are probably totally normal at home. They probably sit around saying, "Hey, you want to watch CSI? Whoa, watch, let's, watch or, let, let, let's order out. Let's get Chinese." Uh, oh, you're going out? Well, let's put on the weird outfit because we don't want people thinking we're normal. All right, uh, Bannister, Everest on the track, the Roger Bannister story. If you don't know who Roger Bannister was, you need to. British guy uh, who broke the uh, four minute mile. And uh, he's really a fascinating figure. I'm kind of surprised that a a better non a better narrative film has never been done about him. But anyway, this is a nice, brisk little 70 minute documentary all about Roger Bannister and his amazing accomplishment and uh, his whole life and backstory and you know all that stuff. Um, really interesting, fascinating guy. And uh, it's, it's a totally worthwhile story, very nicely told. Nothing groundbreaking or earth-shattering, but um, it's a, it's a, if you don't know the story, you need to. It's just one of those great sports stories that, uh, you know, because he's not competing against a team. He's competing against time. And a lot of people thought it, would, it was impossible, and now people, you know, break the four-minute mile routinely. So it's, uh, you know, it's no longer a big deal, but, and guys run marathons and, and run, like, you know, 430 miles 
it for for two hours continuously. But um, anyway, really uh, really interesting little movie. Then we got on uh, the uh, Don Hardy documentary here, Theory of Obscurity, a film about the residents. If you don't know who the residents are, as long as we're on the subject of weirdness, uh, residents are definitely in the Matthew Barney on, on the Matthew Barney weird scale. Uh, the residents are what happens if uh, David Lynch were to reconceptualize Blue Man Group while on, um, I don't know, meth or something. It, it, it's, the, the residents are a very strange group, and uh, they're famous basically for the wearing giant eyeballs on their heads um, as masks. That's kind of what defines That's them. But, they but their videos are some of the tweaked, weirdest, most surreal and bizarre and disturbing things that you will ever see. If you go online and just search for the residents and look at any of those videos which are online, it'll it'll kind of you'll have nightmares for weeks. So anyway, this is um they've been around for, you know, decades and decades and they've made over 60 albums and nobody knows who they really are. That's what makes this thing so so deeply even more disturbing than you would think just from the the uh, visuals and and the music itself. So it's entirely possible there's a lot and likely that a lot of different people have played, you know, been a part of this. And, you know, it's kind of like a secret club in many respects, like this weird covert clandestine club that you get invited to. Like, you know, it's like like Freemasonry in some way. And, and no one knows how many of them and who they are. It's very weird. So anyway, uh, Don Hardy somehow convinced uh, the uh, the manager of the residence to let him basically be uh, fly on the wall and to uh, document you know, this whole weird world that they've created. And that's what this is. And uh, it's, uh, it is, I can't say it's one of, it's something I really liked, but it was certainly very, very interesting. Well, speaking of very, very interesting, mm. um, Mediterranean, absolutely heartbreaking film. This played at uh, Cannes Critics Week uh, last year. This is all about um, African migrants who want to uh, take the rather dangerous journey uh, via boat to Italy uh, and hoping for a better life. And uh, it's all about best friends. They're in uh, Burkina Faso, and they want to go to uh, Italy. So, you know, the plight of immigrants obviously is a big deal here in the United States with uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, our future president. (laughs) The worst. It, he's just the. He's it's the, the strangest year. It's, it's just, just this is. I, I, I. No one knows what's going to happen here. The whole world is watching us and just thinking: Is this like a? Is this? A, is this a show? Is somebody going to? Is this what America's becoming? Is somebody's going to walk out at some point and go? No, no, we're really kidding. This is. This is. But anyway. Anyway, so this thing it's just riveting. It's a. It's a non-professional cast. A lot of sharply observed moments. Uh, it's just really interesting stuff. Mediterranean. It is. A, it's just a, a beautiful. A uh, humanistic look at the immigrant experience, and uh, again, it did play at Cannes, so obviously there's some pedigree there. And uh, yeah, you, you may want to totally check this thing out if you're into foreign cinema. If you're into documentaries, you remember um, a bunch of years ago there was a um, documentary called Winged Migration, 2001, all about big birds flying, and it made everybody love birds just like uh, the penguin doc made everybody love penguins, March of the Penguins. Now we have another documentary that's similar to Winged Migration called The Messenger, and the messenger is all about songbirds, and I got to tell you, this uh, the guy who shot this thing, Daniel Grant, is just gorgeous. All these up close and like super slow mo shots of these uh, songbirds is just gorgeous. And the movie, what it really is, is sort of this call to action because I guess songbirds are becoming uh, extinct, 
And so they want to kind of get you into the whole uh, songbird thing and uh, give you a sense that these birds are beautiful and they're important. And, you know, and uh, yeah, so this guy Grant, he shot this thing at frame rates of up to like a thousand frames a second. Okay, a thousand. Wow. Film is 24 frames a second. That's like some high-speed photography. He shot this thing a thousand frames per second to get super slow-mo of these You can only do that with digital cameras these days. You oh can't. no, he 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 did it by very very qu- quickly cranking. Oh, he did it with a crank. He <laughs> an old like an old silent film camera. <laughs> he did. That he had to he had to awesome. he had to really bench press to be able to get up to that uh, crank speed. <laughs> had to really get the get the get the lats going. Yeah. Anyway, this thing is uh, it's it's a beautiful documentary and it's important. And obviously, when it comes to these sort of activist documentaries, we're into like you know now it's all these big things like global warming and the end of the world and whatnot. Here's a small documentary about a very fascinating subject. That is beautifully shot and totally worth watching. It is called uh, The Messenger. Nice. So uh, here's a really just deeply disturbing film. I can't, it's called Welcome to uh, Laith. And I like the, this thing. Did you like this? I did. Man, it's disturbing, it though. It is. It's creepy that this could happen. Um, this is basically, it takes place in North Dakota, and it's about this white supremacist who basically uh, attempts to sort of take over to dominate an entire small town. And uh, against the will of the people, to be honest, and it's and it's really disturbing. The guy in question is Craig Cobb, who I am not familiar with. I don't I don't really. Why keep... would you want to be familiar with a white supremacist? Well, I don't know. A lot, a lot of them are famous. You know, you sort of know some of these like Metzger, and there's a lot of these guys who you, they, they they you know scream. What's David Duke? Right? There's a lot of them who sort of they they're loudmouths and they they make the news because they do notorious things. I never heard of this guy, and I figure, okay, if this guy has the 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 means, the resources. To create this much trouble, um, and he's below the he's below the radar. That's kind of scary because that's somebody who could cause some trouble. So, uh, and indeed he does. And, and uh, let me let, wait, let me guess. He's voting for Trump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, you know, there was a really interesting interview with uh, the Metzger guy about Trump. You should look it up. It's fascinating. They asked him like I think it was the rap that went and dug him up. And asked him and said, "So, uh, K- you know, KKK people are supporting uh, Trump. What do you? How do you feel about that?" It is the weirdest interview that transpires. It really is. It is surreal. These people are just deranged. So, anyway, speaking of deranged, uh, this guy's deranged too, but he's dangerous. And uh, it, it really is a it is a disturbing, scary film. But it's you know you sort of need to know that this goes on. On a brighter side, well, somewhat brighter side of Men and War is a documentary about uh, war veterans who are suffering from PTSD and their, uh, the treatment process and how it affects their lives at a place called Pathway Home, where uh, you get these unique, really advanced PTSD therapies and uh, putting your lives back together again. This is a, It's a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie. It can be very grueling at times, but it is incredibly life-affirming, and it'll bring you to tears. It really will. Uh, it, it's, it finds hope. And in an almost hopeless uh, set of circumstances. Uh, a documentarian named Don Freeman, a lot of great doc makers out there, did a really fine film called Art House, which uh, I, I like architecture. I have friend, good friends who are very daring and kind of innovative artists slash architects, and I like, I like architecture that's not just, okay, here we're going to build a thing, but we're going to... We're going to make it kind of a presentation unto itself. We're going to do something that's artful and architectural all at the same time. And that is very much what this is, uh, this is about. Um, it, is, uh, it is a really, really 
fascinating look at a particular kind of architecture that turns homes and living spaces into works of art. And, uh, you know, I don't know the names in particular of any of the architects that are covered in here, but wow, what a fascinating world and, and what interesting ways of taking something that is otherwise mundane to a lot of people and, and making it really, really daring. Very interesting. And then uh, Code Girl from Kino Lorber is a, uh, a, an okay documentary uh, about a competition, a worldwide competition that tries to encourage more women to become computer programmers because most coders, most people who write programs and apps and, and work in the computer field and do coding are men. And uh, not any great reason for that other than it seems that it's culturally acceptable for men to do it and for boys to do it and it's a nerdy thing and girls don't, it's not, it's not like a girly thing to do. So there's a competition that encourages women all over the school, all over the, the world in different schools to participate in writing code and writing apps and these work groups. And that's basically what this is about. It's all these teams from all over the world who are trying to get uh, to, to win a $10,000 um, prize for this uh, international competition. And uh, it's, it's, it, it's a little bit too much of a subject to bite off, but many of the girls are really, really cool. And uh, you learn a lot about these different cultures and, and what they're facing and what they're struggling with and the taboos they're trying to beat and a lot of the socioeconomic barriers. And yet they're, you know, they're writing apps that do all these interesting things for their communities and for their neighborhoods. So it's a good film. Probably should be better. It's a little bit too much of a subject to tackle in one documentary, but it's still very, very, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's pleasant to watch. It's affirming. Good subject. Yes, Wade? Yes. Y- your turn. Uh- uh, from memory, uh, from Nova's memory hackers, and uh, you know, as somebody who uh, can't remember Jack S anymore, uh, <laughs> it's just the worst. I, I, are we I continuing last week's dementia senility theme? Is that what <laughs> we we're doing? Are. I was curious about what hackers. This. What is this about? Memory hackers. Memory, memory. It, it's okay. about it's you know it's about how we remember things, how yeah. we remember our past, and 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 how far back our memory goes, and where we put like key memories and, and key moments of our lives. Uh, you know where where do they go? Yeah, from like a neuron perspective, you know, and they these guys they can use this research, this total cutting edge twenty fourth century research, to kind of get a sense from a, a molecular level how memory works. Right, you know they they talk to this kid. Uh, he's not. A t- I think he's like ten or eleven. But they talk to this kid who remembers everything he's ever experienced in his life because he's some sort of memory freak. Sweet. And so what they did is they they, they killed him and uh, cut his brain open. No. They didn't do that. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. So it, it's it's all about the uh, the mind, how memory works, how the mind can be used to to trick yourself, and how the mind can be used uh, where memories go as you get older, how they disappear. And I found this thing totally exciting. Memory hackers, totally. I'm, in fact, I barely rem- remember watching it because I have Alzheimer's at this point. Yeah. But uh, uh, that was a joke. Mm-hmm. But I did like it very much. Memory it's hackers. kind of a joke. Sort of a joke. Not maybe, a- maybe it's for folks who are, like, are losing their memory like me. So uh, a couple here on art, a couple of interesting art-centric uh, documentaries. Packed in a Trunk is all about Edith Lake Wils- Wilkinson, who, uh, you know, again, I don't follow enough of the art world to have known why she's significant, but uh, she is famous. For, she is a lesbian artist. That doesn't mean she does lesbian art. There's no such thing. But it is significant because, you know, uh, there when you are uh, a lesbian and you're growing up in the 1940s, uh, and that suddenly creates its own barriers to becoming a successful uh, artist. 
in this case, that barrier was that she was sent to an asylum, and uh, that end- effectively ended her life. And her genius was all packed away in trunks and thrown into an attic. And uh, it wasn't until years later when her great niece, Jane Anderson, who is actually an award-winning uh, television producer uh, and writer and director, and you know has worked on all kinds of really great things for for HBO and other networks, um, she um, uh, she basically is the one who. Um, uh, unravels this, and uh, it, it, it you, suddenly we have all of this amazing art that was locked away because of you know certain taboos of the time, and the artist was uh, had her career and her life prematurely ended, and it's an incredibly tragic life that uh, comes to light through some amazing is sort of redeemed by all of these amazing paintings, and they are amazing. They are almost Van Gogh like in their in their use of color and their use of perspective and, you know, just the way that she saw the world. It's really, uh, you know, it makes you sad and happy all at the same time. So um, definitely worth checking out. This is a Packed in a Trunk, really a wonderful, wonderful film. And then um, slightly less wonderful but perhaps equally interesting in many respects is an essay movie called Toyen, which is um, a, uh, a documentary about the uh, about Toyen, who is a, a surrealist Czech painter, uh, directed by the Czech New Wave director Jan Nemec. Uh, Jan Nemec, or Nemec, depending on how uh, you choose to pronounce it, uh, very influential Czech New Wave uh, director, and uh, tries to sort of uh, illuminate the uh, the work of Toyen in a political context here. That's the whole idea, because... Uh, being uh, opposed to Czech communism during that period was uh, a, a, you know, a, was really what you know. Art was your protest. Art was your weapon. So that's uh, that's what the the approach is here. This is a, essentially an essay film, and it is a DVD R. So you have to order it directly from Facets, uh, and uh, it is worth checking out if you are an art film uh, or an art history film buff. Um, I'm not quite sure how to explain a documentary called Dreams Rewired. All I can say is that it was completely fascinating. It was directed by three people, and uh, it's actually it's very academic, but when you watch it, you sort of see a theme emerging. It, is, it uses early film, early radio, talks about uh, television, and all these different means of communication and how they have connected all of us together and sort of and um, sort of driven technology into the future because as a as a people we are a naturally uh, connected people. We want to be connected by shared experiences. Sure. And so I don't really want to be connected to you, but I get what you mean. You mean a more general that's sense because of the uh, the sure. paywall of new photos yeah, that exactly. on your site. Yeah. Um, and so you get something like maybe from the telephone, where you could call somebody in another city and connect themselves with them, whereas oh, normally nice. you, you can only do that via mail. Sure. You get something like uh, like film, where people, people they don't realize that early film was like 80% of the country would go see a film every week. Yep. Because it was the first, even more than the theater, the first truly mass communication experience that everybody wanted to experience on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And then came television, yeah. where you get you know fifty million people at the time in the early days, fifty million people watching the same show. So again, it gets rather academic. But this documentary, fascinating, called "Dreams We Rewired," is all about how these shared experiences help shape who we are and help shape the future. So 
Um, I would definitely uh, check this out, Dreams Rewired. It is such a big subject. It took three people to um, direct this thing, but it was um, it was narrated in rather unique fashion by Tilda Swinton. So if you're into the Tilda Swinton, and of course who isn't, then uh, you will enjoy this very lively... Tilda. Huh? Love Tilda. Lots of great old footage in this thing. I mean, we're talking films from the 1880s. Uh, so anyway, good stuff. Dreams Rewired. Don't get scared by the academic uh, nature of it. It's really good stuff. Also good is uh, a, a documentary that I uh, flipped through because I have no interest in uh, visiting Ecuador, although I did really enjoy the uh, topography and staring at the food. Um, it's a beautiful country, and it is... Uh, it hot fe- and it, wet. Hot and wet, and it features uh, the president of the country, uh, Rafael Correa. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I got a little bit more of a... Um, of a sense of Ecuador and why I might want to visit, but uh, I, I don't really want to visit Ecuador. Uh, continuing our art theme is Troublemakers, the story of land art uh, from documentarian James Crump. Uh, I, I can't say I'm really into land art. Uh, didn't really know it existed. Still not quite sure what the point is, but I get it. It's like like you know people who. Uh, you know, whenever they have the, uh, whenever you have like the Tour de France, you know, there will be a lot of farmers in France who will go out with a tractor and they will plow some picture in their cornfields or their wheat fields so that you can see it from a helicopter and you go, oh, isn't that nice? It says, you know, go Lance, go or stop drugging or whatever. Stop doping. Um, it, that's a little bit of the kind of thing going on here. Um, land art was it became a thing, I guess, in the uh, 1960s. And you had a lot of people who would go and they'd do these weird landscape um, kind of create things, like stuff that you can only see from helicopters and airplanes. Anyway, uh, this revisits a lot of that stuff. And uh, it had a moment back then, primarily 1960s, maybe dipping into the 1970s. And I, I don't really kind of get what the point was, or it almost seems more like vandalism on a level to me. I, I, I hope I'm not insulting anybody by saying that. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, so, you know, it's like graffiti is one thing. You can wash it off and, you know, it's, you, you, you put it onto man-made walls. But this is like, I don't know. I don't get it. But anyway, so that's uh, an interesting doc. Troublemakers, the story of land art. It is provocative, if nothing else. Hang on, let me throw in a documentary that you may want to buy for your grandmother or grandfather. More like grandmother, but I, I mean that seriously. A documentary called I Know a Woman Like That. And I Know a Woman Like That is a wonderful documentary about women who are getting older. They're in their late 60s, they're in their 70s. And it's a time when people just assume that older folks just like disappear and because they're not out there you know, on their iPhones playing Angry Birds. Uh, but actually, they live vital lives. They have their own. Uh, they have their own hobbies, and they've made their own choices. And it's great stuff. Uh, there are some famous women of that age in there. Eartha Kitt, Lauren Hutton, is in there too. So uh, Gloria Steinem, obviously, who is in the news all the time. Uh, so yeah. So I know a woman like that is all about how just because you're a woman who is growing older doesn't mean you have to like give up on life. Nope. And it is inspiring. And I just thought it was terrific. And then a uh, couple from PBS, uh, 10 That Changed America. These are uh, is, it, things that changed America uh, architecturally, design-wise, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking like homes, entire communities, um, uh, landscape design. It's, it, it's a very broad it's a very broad uh, perspective that they take on things that change, but they wanted what they wanted were sort of anything that was broadly architectural, so not just an actual individual 
house or building or a thing, but thing that includes art, landscape architecture and entire architectural developments. And so it, it's really a, a very, very uh, open architectural consideration, but it wants to sort of make the point that these ten things actually changed the country. Uh, with respect to urban planning, with respect to suburban planning, with respect to uh, you know community planning, with the just the general aesthetic. So uh, and it's interesting. I uh, I don't know that I necessarily agree that these are the ten that changed America, but um, they are certainly interesting. You obviously get uh, you know like the the Eames home from Charles and Ray Eames. Uh, you obviously get Falling Water by Frank Lloyd Wright. Those things go without saying. And then uh, you get stuff like Monticello. And uh, it's uh, it's worth checking out. I mean, only if you're really really interested in the subject matter. But, but it's it's worth inter- it's an interesting journey. And then uh, Iceman Reborn is an installation of uh, installment of Nova that goes into the uh, ice mummy and what we have learned from the ice mummy. If you if you aren't familiar with the ice mummy, this is a guy who was murdered five thousand years ago. They named him Otzi and. Uh, when they unearth this mummy, they're obviously this is one of the most well-preserved uh, glacial age mummies ever, and they immediately started uh, violating him and dissecting him and, and uh, analyzing him to see what they could learn about our, our ancient past. And uh, what they found out was that uh, basically he interrupted somebody's television viewing time, and that's why they killed him. So things haven't really changed in five thousand years. You know what? I'm telling you, people people love Golden Girl reruns. They do. And that's unbelievable. Yeah. So um, horrible. You know what you you and you remember that uh, that Timothy Hutton film Iceman. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. he plays a guy who yeah. was uh, buried in the, the ice for mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of years, and uh, you know he's resurrected. All right, classic stuff. We got a ton of classic stuff. We're gonna we're gonna burn through this stuff and try to get through it uh, by the end of the show. Uh, Mark, tell us what spectacular glories we have on Criterion this week. Wade, sometimes oh. there are films. Sometimes there are films when you think to yourself, "Yes, Criterion's doing that one." Mm-hmm. The player, which I saw at Cannes, I still remember. Man, that was that was okay. Such a, drop the name. I'm dropping it because it was, no, because it was it was just such an uh, such an awesome revelation. You know, it was uh, it was you know Altman was at Cannes with the player, and it was about the movie biz, and everybody was very excited, and it turned out to be even better than anyone imagined. It was amazing. You know what's amazing. funny? It, it is because. The movie is not only a great film on its own, but it is also this like representation of what Altman thought about the industry. And that cool opening single take shot. And that great opening single yeah. take shot, which is just cool. It's it, because it just takes you through studio offices, and it it sort of insinuates you into a studio onto a studio lot in a very very interesting way. It's great. Well, but you know, uh, Altman had this weird relationship with Hollywood, and he was very cynical about it. And he, you know, loved it as much as he hated it, it seemed to me. Yeah, and no, for so sure. And so this film sort of brings all that, not only all that to bear, but it, it's also a great amalgam of his styles. The overlapping dialogue and the wit, right? It's all there in the player, and it looks great. Criterion did an amazing job with it. And I just feel like, uh, you know what, obviously Altman... Did great comedies. He did Mash. He did great westerns. He did, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He reinvented the detective picture pretty much with the long goodbye. But with the player, he just knocks it out of the park. This thing is funny and it is insightful and it is witty and it is, in a way, it's almost the ultimate Robert Altman film because it is not only 
not only stylistically does it does it combine everything he's good at, but it's all but the subject matter obviously is so close to him because it's really about just the just the the, the caustic, nasty, mean mm-hmm. underbelly of Hollywood, yep. which I think is what Alvin really thought of the industry. Well, I mean, the part where Peter Gallagher is talking about like we could replace writers. That was this really that was a big laugh at the time where it was like, oh boy, that can you imagine that it was like an exaggerated view of Hollywood cynicism. It was it felt like a metaphor for like an exaggerated metaphor for for just how horrible the business was. And now we get to a place where people actually are 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 almost saying that like we could do away with writers. We could we could uh, you know we could do a movie that just basically uh, is written by fans or the rights itself. It just—it's—it's it's amazing how how close we've come to the edge. And yet, what's what what I find odd about it—not odd, but wonderful about it—is that it's not mean. It's really not mean spirited. No, it's, it's not. It's, a, it's kind of a fun, funny movie. It is, even though there's a lot of venom in the way that you know this is really what Altman kind of thinks of the underbelly. But isn't, of Hollywood. That, isn't that Altman's personality? It's Altman's personality. This yeah. movie is Altman's personality, yeah. stylistically and also uh, uh, psychologically. Yeah. It is Altman, and uh, but yet it is still really funny. Yeah, it's vicious. It's like it's vicious and satirical, but it's not mean spirited. And uh, so the player is just fantastic. And and this is a must buy. And Criterion knocks it out of the park. 4K digital restoration. Uh, there's an old uh, audio commentary with uh, Altman, which is great from 1992. New interviews with Tim Robbins and Can uh, Film Festival stuff from 1992. In fact, I think you may even see Wade there. Yeah, because uh, he's so uh, he's dropping names. So there, now there's some deleted scenes. And outtakes, which is great, and uh, I just you, you have to buy this now. You have to buy the player I, on Criterion right I now. Concur. This moment, I agree. Exactly. It's one of the one of the best Criterions I've had in a while. Now, The Naked Island is a film that uh, I wasn't as familiar with, but I think it's terrific. It's a uh, it's a Japanese film from 1960. It's about a small family, and they're kind of they're trying to make it happen on this small island uh, off Japan over the course of like one year. And they're the only ones who live on the island, and they survive by, you know, they, they, they farm and they plow and they sort of fend for themselves, and they have to, like, carry the water for the plants by themselves. And uh, it just starts there. It's just a very interesting film. It's, uh, there's very little dialogue. In fact, maybe, in fact, I'm trying to remember now in the film, is there no dialogue in this movie? You know, there's actually no dialogue in this movie, now that I'm looking back on it. So there's no dialogue in the film, and yet it is totally riveting. 96 minutes, so it's not like you have to stare at a... It's basically a silent film. I mean, you know, it's funny. Like, you say, oh, there's no dialogue. That's so unusual. Well, the first, you know, 30 years of, or let's say, yeah, 30 years of film, it's, there was no dialogue. It's like the Shaun the Sheep movie. You watch the Shaun the Sheep movie, and you're loving it, and it takes you... I mean, you realize that, you know, at a certain point, you're like, wait a minute, this is... I've been watching this for an hour, and no one has actually said a word. It's all just grunts and sounds and, and oohs and ahs. It's great. Yeah. Uh, the In terms of... Um, Extras, obviously the film is a little bit obscure, so there's not the enormous amount of extras that you're used to on Criterion, but there is an audio commentary um, featuring uh, uh, Kaneto Shindo from 2000. Uh, there's Benicio Del Toro. They, I get, he, he's a huge fan of the film, so they actually dug him up and they had him film some sort of appreciation for which is pretty good. And um, yeah, so there you go. I would definitely check out The Naked Island. It's a unique film. From a country where, like in 1960, post-war, they're kind of you know they're they're get, they're getting their cinema on you know, and uh, it's great. 
All right, got some uh, got some Warner Archive titles here, which I'm going to go through uh, really quickly. Uh, a couple of Blu-rays, a couple of fantastic Blu-rays. Uh, the less known one here is Susan Slept Here, which was the last film that Dick Powell ever made. Dick Powell and a very young Debbie Reynolds. And uh, this is a, a really terrific romantic comedy with a little bit of an edge to it uh, from 1954. Uh, Not the kind of thing that you would uh, necessarily expect from this period. This was an RKO uh, film, 1954. Basically, Frank Tashlin, who did a lot of great Jerry Lewis movies, directed this uh, about a, uh, a really troubled young woman who was 17 who uh, is basically a cop brings her to Dick Powell to prevent her from getting any worse. She's got all, you know, to sort of whip her into shape. And um, he decides the only way to do that is to marry her and then divorce her when she turns 18. I don't want to get into any of the marriage laws. I know people are thinking, wait, how do you marry a 17-year-old? Isn't this kind of twisted and pervy? And isn't there kind of a Lolita thing going on? Yes, and yes, and yes, and don't ask about it. It's 1954. It'll, it, it, it's explained, and the film gets through all that stuff. Uh, but uh, I would love to, at some point, talk to Alonzo about this, because this is, in theory, a Christmas film. And, uh, you know, because the whole thing takes place in and around Christmas. And uh, I would love to know Alonzo's opinion of this. Because it is definitely one of those tweaked Christmas films that uh, he often talks about. And he is the uh, the expert. And Francis co-stars. Otherwise, Debbie Reynolds, wonderful. Dick Powell, wonderful. And speaking of Debbie Reynolds, uh, you, know, you know, that documentary at Cannes all about her relationship with Carrie Fisher is uh, getting rave reviews. You heard about that. Say again? There's a, the documentary with, uh, at Cannes with, uh, all about Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher and their relationship. It's getting all kinds of crazy rave reviews. Really? I didn't even know that existed. Also from the Warner Archive collection on Blu-ray, a long overdue, wonderful Blu-ray. Blu-ray. My goodness, this looks great, and it's just wonderful, and thank goodness they did this. Uh, made on demand, Blu-ray, Suspicion, the Alfred Hitchcock classic with Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine. I adore Joan Fontaine even though she was the first one to go, and she always said that Olivia de Havilland would probably be angry if she, did, if she beat her to that as well. And Olivia de Havilland's going to turn 100. Is it this year or next year? I, I, I don't know She's that 99. Top of my head. She's 99. It's crazy. Cray-cray. Crazy, I'm pretty sure. You might want to check that up. Anyway, uh, so the idea here is ba- it's basically about a woman who uh, marries someone who, it turns out, may be a murderer and uh, on the verge of murdering her. And, uh, you know, Joan Fontaine is just so good at these kinds of parts. It's a little bit of Rebecca Rebecca in there. Uh, This was made in uh, 1941, the year after Rebecca. So she's definitely playing to uh, audience expectations of who she is, and she does it brilliantly. Cary Grant, equally brilliant. Uh, Cedric Hardwick, Nigel Bruce, a lot of other great supporting performers here. And a fantastic screenplay co-written by Samson Rafelson. If you don't know that name, one of the great screenwriters in the history of the golden era. And then we also have, um, on regular DVD-R, uh, still part of the Warner Archive MOD, um, The First 100 Years with Robert Montgomery and Virginia Bruce, which is a cute, uh, sweet sort of uh, comedy of manners, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Uh, it takes place in uh, Massachusetts and a lot of, you know, that, that old snappy banter that uh, people just sit around, you know, in uh, drawing rooms and uh, in nice restaurants and just it bounces back and forth. And it's that kind of stuff they just don't write anymore. It's just really, really nicely put together. That's a fun film. 
a Yank at Oxford starring Robert Taylor. Basically, uh, just one of those movies about you know life at Oxford and uh, how it, how rough it can be and how sophisticated it can be, and you know most of it centering on uh, college athletics. And uh, it's fine. Uh, I wouldn't call it uh, amazing or anything, but it's uh, it's a nice uh, nice little golden era throwback. And then we have uh, Cinema's Exiles from Hitler to Hollywood. This is particularly interesting, actually. Uh, this looks at movies between 1933 and 1939 when uh, there was a huge exodus of the, from the German film industry into Hollywood, obviously seeing the writing on the wall. And a lot of these are, uh, you know, the, the, in the silent era, Germany was the equal. The Weimar cinema was the equal to Hollywood in the world. Hollywood did not become dominant until after World War II. That was when Hollywood became the dominant film industry to the exclusion of all the others because World War II destroyed the German and the Italian and the French film industries. Well, F.W. Murnau and Fritz Lang, yeah. they all came over and made amazing films. They made it. Well, I'll, I'll, this is about the, the 1933 to 1939 period. Just, you know, once, the, once Kristallnacht happened and then the writing was on the wall, every, just about every Jew in Germany said, I'm, I'm going to keep my career going in that other industry. And we benefited. And uh, really tremendous uh, story here. So this is Cinema's Exiles from Hitler to Hollywood. Uh, it deals with uh, Billy Wilder, Fritz Long, Peter Lorre, Franz Waxman, Fred Zinnemann, uh, you know, on and on and on. And, and when you think about the movies that they made that we wouldn't have or that would be different if not for them, it's like they reinvented Hollywood. Well, what's funny really is, that, is, that, is that, you know, if, if you look at American film versus, let's say, European film – the Germans had visually. The Germans had it on us in the early days of film. Oh, if you by look far. at like Nosferatu and some of these like classic expressionism films, you know, Metropolis, they had it on us big time. Big time. We yeah. might have had the technology, sure. And you know, and Charlie Chaplin, of course, was not even American, but Charlie yeah. Chaplin maybe had that. Was able to combine like comedy and pathos, whatever. But the Germans, in terms of shooting, they in the early days they really had it on us. So when they came over For and sure. brought some of that sensibility to our mm-hmm. films, it made our films better. Yep, absolutely true. And then uh, Marion Davies stars for director Robert Z. Leonard in uh, Marianne. This was a, an MGM film from uh, 1929. This is really right there on the cusp of, you know, silent to sound. And uh, so it's, this, the audio is really raw. I have to say Warner did an unbelievable job of burnishing this up and really kind of giving it a little shine and a sheen for a DVD release, especially considering it's a DVD-R, but it, 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 it still has the old movie feel to it. And uh, it's wonderful. If you don't understand why Marion Davies was such a wonderful star and why she continued to be one, why making the transition from, to, to the talkies worked for her, here you go. This is beautiful. Uh, this, this spells it out for you. So for film history buffs, this is a really, this is a, a really fun jump back in time. Um, definitely check it out. Marianne, a wonderful, wonderful um, showcase for Marianne Davies and all of her inimitable talents. I have something wonderful. I know you do. Uh, Wade, um, Kelly Reichardt is probably the best director whose films you've never seen. He's the best American director whose she, films you've she, never seen. She makes films that are so slow, <laughs> they... they they, they almost don't move. It's well, almost like a like a, a single frame. I it's but I, really I love them. I think they're very they're incisive. They're funny, and I got to say, Oscilloscope did a great job re-releasing a River of Grass, which is the one that really kind of put her on the map in many respects. Yes, because I I want to see a movie where, and I think you want to see a movie they're, too, where people pass uh, uh, marijuana joints, people pass them between each other using their feet. 
Yeah, that's great. I would like. To I'm see not that. a big fan of this film. I'm re- not really a fan of of, of her. Of, no, I, I'm not. But really? Wendy and Lucy, Meek's cutoff is good stuff. But I understand why Wendy and Lucy. Yes, I, there, there there is some moments there. I understand what people like about her films. There's a there's an honesty, and she lets her characters breathe and lets scenes kind of unfold in in real emotional time, and doesn't really you know sort of force the issue. Nothing feels inauthentic. I get all of that. It just I don't particularly enjoy watching them. Well, this one is a, well. This one has a bit of a crime, you know, bit of a crime plot in it too, which you might kind of like. It's about these two lovers; they're on the run, and uh, it's in, it takes place in South Florida, which seems like the type of place where you know, just like this lonely, dead inside people would like kind of go and hang out. And you know, they're these two lovers; they're taking a swim, and a gun goes off, and then that kind of gets the plot going. And I just think this thing was great. It really set the stage for who Kelly Reichardt would eventually become. And what's funny is that she really hasn't changed that much since this film in terms of budgets. Maybe, you know, she gets Michelle Williams to star in her films, right? Yeah, often. You know? Yeah. Um, which, because I think Michelle Williams was in, no, was it? Um, the Lucy thing. The Lucy thing, right. Yeah, with the but dog. That was good. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this is uh, Kelly Reichardt's um, film debut, and it was just terrific. So we have that, and on the other end of the spectrum, we have Hire to Kill, which Arrow, for some reason, has decided to is worth a blu-ray and a dvd collection it, it, this is a strange one I, I i i most of the most of the arrow stuff i kind of look at and i go oh that thank goodness they brought that out um black caesar or whatever else but this is this, this is one i was like a little really? weird i mean it's about this this is it's, guy plays this mercenary he's hired by george kennedy who plays this caa guy to go into the go into the Mediterranean and try to rescue a rebel leader. It's not a particularly good film, and it wasn't. A, it's not really a cult film. It just it's, it's just a weird little movie. Yeah. I mean, frankly, people love it because Oliver Reed wears the most bizarre mustache you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> it's true. And uh, I mean, actually, they they have it on look, look. They have it on the box. Yeah, it's. I mean, come on, what's he doing with that? I thing? don't know. It's like things like a, a, a character of its own. Yeah. Anyway, the thing is pretty preposterous, but uh, you know, I guess there's some. Colorful locations mm-hmm. to look at, and Oliver Reed chooses the scenery, and I guess it's fine, but I, I think Arrow's done better than Hired to Kill. Yes, they have. Also, we have A Married Woman by uh, Jean-Luc Godard, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something about Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah. Never my favorite. No, mine neither. I, I'm, I'm supposed to love him because, you know, we, we love film, but I just don't, uh, yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, Cohen Film, and they're just wonderful. We love Cohen Film. They came out with this and uh, did a pretty good job. 2010 interview with uh, Agnes B., is involved in this, and uh, also a 2010 interview with a, a Godar scholar, which definitely helps because Godar films obviously are a little uh, impenetrable, uh, and that is not by accident. And so, yeah, so it's about this woman who wants to get a divorce, and she's also got a lover who she has a child with, and it sort of goes on from there. So, um, yeah, A Married Woman. I don't know if this is one of Godar's best films, but um, it was pretty well received at the time, especially at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, yeah. All right. And then I got three here from the um, MOD line over at 20th Century Fox and MGM. They have their uh, Fox Cinema Archives and MGM Limited Edition releases. And uh, we got one from MGM and two from Fox, all in the uh, standard MOD packaging. The um, uh, Actually, I'm sorry, two from MGM, one from Fox. I take that back. The uh, Fox one is On the Threshold of Space, which was a big uh, cinemascope production uh, back in 1954, uh, 50, no, 56, 1956. And um, I can't say that this is a particularly good film, 
but it was one of those big cinemascope demos at the time. You know, 1956 was the the year that everything kind of changed. Uh, that was the year that uh, Around the World in 80 Days won uh, Best Picture, and with Tadeo, which was a rival widescreen format. Everything was widescreen. Everything was about showing off Cinerama, Cinemascope, uh, this scope, and, and that Rama. Everything was all about showing off this new, uh, the, the whole new widescreen era. And um, so this is uh, trying to combine that with the excitement about the space program, which, by the way, in 1956 was not really even much of a reality. It was more theory than anything else. Sputnik didn't go up until the following year. So um, this is all kind of looking down the line and trying to combine real-life space enthusiasm uh, with, uh, with widescreen excitement. And it's okay. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice little flashback, uh, pretty well put together, but otherwise it's, it ain't no right stuff. Uh, and then on the MGM line, the, the race, for, race for the Yankee Zephyr, which is a, kind of a middling, middling movie with Ken Wall and Donald Pleasance um, racing George Pappard to try to find a, an old wrecked World War II plane that may have $50 million in it. Meh, it's okay. Uh, you know, more, to, more, more worth seeing just because of who's in it. And then one of my all-time favorites, uh, Year of the Comet. Uh, and by all-time favorites, I, I mean not even remotely. This is, a, this is a strange Peter Yates misfire that looks really good, um, but uh, doesn't really, doesn't, doesn't, never quite gels. Uh, decent cast. Louis Jourdain still, you know, got it. He's still got it going on in this. And Ian Richardson, Penelope Ann Miller, and Tim Daly, very, very uh, engaging. But uh, it, uh, the whole kind of, um, it's sort of a Hepburn Tracy chemistry that they're going for, and it doesn't really, it doesn't quite work. So, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Penelope Ann Miller and Tim Daly, still a lovely couple. If you like them, in spite of the fact that their chemistry doesn't really hold together in this sort of capery comedy. Uh, romantic chemistry thing, then, you know, if you just want to see them, by all means, check it out. But that's on uh, MOD from uh, the uh, Manufacture on on Demand line, the MGM Limited Edition Collection from uh, MGM and 20th Century Fox. All right. um, Mark, I'm going to... I got a whole ton of olive titles here. You have a whole ton of olives? A whole ton of olives. We We got a blazing set of releases from Olive this month. Uh, Most of them are really, really uh, noteworthy. Uh, Maybe not my favorite films, but they are significant and they are somebody's favorite films. So I'm going to start with the lone DVD in this thing, which is Legend of the Lost, which is a a strange combination of talent. Uh, If you didn't know, John Wayne and Sophia Loren actually did star in a movie together, and this is it, Legend of the Lost. Sophia Loren had a lot of weird pairings in her career. I mean, she... And they weren't necessarily great movies, but she somehow got around and and made a movie with just about every major male actor in Hollywood. Rather extraordinary. Uh, This takes place in the the Sahara. Uh, Rosanna Brazzi is also in this. Uh, This was made in 1957. We're stuck in the 50s uh, quite a lot today. And um, it is essentially a Western that takes place in the Sahara, which seems to be the only way that they could justify pairing up John Wayne with Sophia Loren. Uh, beautiful photography. Um, you know, it, it has a kind of a whole... The whole idea is about finding the uh, the lost city of Ophir where there's a treasure and, you know, it's one of those usual kind of uh, uh, 
the pot boiler, old uh, Indiana Jones type things, the, where people are looking for something archaeological, and and there's a certain thing to that. But really, what you're watching it for is Jack Cardiff's amazing cinematography, which is just gorgeous and makes. Sophia Loren looks gorgeous. Doesn't really make John Wayne look gorgeous, but I guess that's the point oh, to John Wayne. He is gorgeous. All right. And then we've also got uh, The Private Affairs of Belle Ami with George Sanders and Angela Lansbury, both of whom are magnificent with dialogue. Uh, this is an actually a really, really fun film directed by Albert Lewin in 1946, based on the Guy de Maupassant novel Belle Ami. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's just delightful. It's exactly what you'd expect. A lot of great dialogue, fun, uh, beautiful photography, fun uh, back and forth. Angela Lansbury is just terrific. I mean, young in a way that you, I mean, you, you look at this and you're like, that's the lady from Murder, She Wrote? She's young and hot and scorching and cool. And George Sanders, always so sophisticated. Really, really a fun film. Uh, and then the very weird but culty Zapped with Scott Baio and Willie Ames. Man, this thing just continues to live on. This has been released many times on DVD. It is now finally out on Blu-ray, courtesy of Olive. Uh, what a great get for them. In 1982, kind of a quintessential youth film from 1982 when both Willie Ames and Scott Baio were... Um, they were a thing, right? They, they, they had their, their moment, and this was their moment. And this was supposed to be their big movie moment. Didn't really turn into it. But... Uh, it it was also at that time when kids were kids and the whole thing was uh, remember my you know my science project and weird science and all that stuff. Um, this is a little bit kind of uh, presaging that vein of strange movies that would dominate the eighties, uh, giving kids telekinetic powers and to do all kinds of really goofy untoward kid things. Um, and then actually one of the uh, one of the actresses in the film. It also shows up in Rich Kids. That is Trini Alvarado. Trini Alvarado uh, also had a moment. She is in 1979's Rich Kids. And uh, this is not a particularly good film, I don't think. But it had a moment because it was directed by Robert Young. And it was written by the very talented Judith Ross. And uh, it, had a, it, it had a bit of a following. And it's, it dates kind of poorly, but... I don't know. There's something charming about the whole young romance thing, the way that it's depicted here. Robert Altman was an executive producer on this. Uh, it was actually produced by the Canadian company Lionsgate. That is Lion apostrophe S. Not the Lionsgate. Space G-A-T-E, which would go on to become the current Lionsgate. Yes. So this is one of their earliest. A previous incarnation of that company actually was involved in uh, making this at the time. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, you know, that's more nostalgia than anything else. Uh, the more re- speaking of kids with powers, the more recent Cody Banks series with Frankie Muniz uh, now makes it in Agent Cody Banks, along with Agent Cody Banks Two: Destination London. Uh, both of these are now out uh, from Olive on Blu-ray, and uh, I was never a fan of these, but a lot of people love these movies. Harold Zwart, the uh, Norwegian director who uh, who directed uh, Agent Cody Banks, um, is. He's okay. He want you know. He he didn't direct the sequel. Kevin Allen directed the sequel, but I don't know. I mean, whatever. Those films really make you happy. And then I'll uh, I'll finish the rest of the. Actually, go ahead and talk about those. I'll finish these when you're done. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Wade, uh, one of the most important films we'll talk about this week, I think, obviously the player being the number super number one, is Manhunter. The Manhunter was directed by Michael Mann and co-stars William Peterson from um, Live to Live and Die in L.A. 
And why is this movie important, Wade? Because it stars Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter. I love this movie. This is so, some people prefer this over Silence of the Lambs. I, I, I don't understand that part, but some people do. I don't. Well, I, I kind of prefer it over Silence of the Lambs. I, 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 don't, I think Silence of the Lambs is a better, more effective film, but here's what I like. This is a very 80s movie. I like Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter better than Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter because Anthony Hopkins is playing up the psycho part of it. He's, he's just you, – you, you look at him playing that part and you think nobody would ever go to you as a doctor. Nobody would ever see you. They just wouldn't. You're just weird and creepy and you, you, I can tell you're a psychopath. Brian Cox underplays it in this thing. He's sitting behind that glass and when William Peterson goes to see him, you just think, well, why is this guy behind glass? There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with him. And eventually the, psycho, the manipulative psychopath shows itself and gets under his skin and inside his head. It's a much more he, – he gets the character better. He wasn't ever going to win an Oscar for it because he's not chewing the scenery. But it is a better representation of who that character is. Well, the thing with Hopkins is that he, you know, he had – he was only in that film for like you know, 20 minutes or something. Yeah. But yet his presence was in the film the entire owns, way through. Owns it. He it's owns the whole movie. It's a little bit the same here. Yeah, well, this one is uh, it's a little bit it's, – it's similar to Silence of the Lambs. It's actually based on, the, um, on Thomas Harris's novel Red Dragon, which would be remade – which would be remade – By Brett Ratner. By Brett Ratner, which and means that terrible, you should go ahead and see Man Horrible. Because Brett Ratner is terrible and horrible. Although I have to say, as a producer, Brett Ratner, guy, he kills it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, as a producer, yeah, makes good movies. Yeah, no, that, that everything that Rat Pack has been financing yes, is great. Absolutely, I want, it's just I want the most to, bizarre turn of events for that guy. I, I stop directing movies, just finance and produce them, and we'll be good. <laughs> we'll be good. Anyway, William Peterson plays a uh, he's a, he's an FBI for, well he was an FBI profiler and he he gets pulled back in to help find this serial killer known as the Tooth Fairy. And uh, just like Silence of the Lambs, in order to kind of get into the mind of the Tooth Fairy, he's got to uh, he's got to converse with Hannibal Lecter. Um, so yeah, I have to say that Shot Factory did a great job with the uh, with the um, with the Blu-ray. Just fantastic new interviews with the DP Dante Spinotti, who's one of the greats. William Peterson, Tom Noonan, and Joan Tom, Allen, who was in this. Tom Noonan is just Tom Noonan is chilling in this movie. He is so freaky. I've never been able to watch him in any other part and take him seriously. Because like he, he wears so that, scares he, me. He wears that weird like supervillain. Yeah, thing when he puts on his the head. yeah, oh, so creepy. Anyway, there's two discs of this. Uh, there's a, a director's cut. There's an audio commentary by Michael Mann, which is great because you know Michael Mann is he he is so he's so uh, smart and specific in terms of his intentions and how he achieved them that uh, any Michael Mann audio commentary is worth it he's not the most uh, you know uh, hilarious guy on an, on an audio commentary but you'll learn a lot so Manhunter is a great film and a great piece of history and even though as Wade says it's a little 80s it's still just a terrific movie and an important film especially considering where that series and where that character would go uh, to you know best picture Oscar winning success. Yes. So there's that, and then we also have a movie uh, called uh, "I Saw What You Did," which is not a good movie, but it's got a cool premise. You know, people don't really do this anymore anymore in the age of social media. But when I was a kid, we used to do uh, we used to uh, do crank calls. Yeah. You just call random people and say uh, sure. stupid things, and then then see how long it would take them to figure out that that you're actually an idiot. This yeah. movie is about these two kids, and they would call people, and they would say, "I saw what you did," and then the, the other person on the line would either say it's they either figure it's, it's just a prank, or maybe you would call somebody who just 
murdered his wife. And mm-hmm. then when he hears, I saw what you did, it starts this whole little turn of events. So it's a cool little premise. I wish the movie was better. Uh, it's with Joan Crawford. It does have some historical significance in that it stars Joan Crawford and was written and or produced and directed by William Castle. Now William Castle, who, who was one of the great, the, the, one of the great horror showmen, the, the exploitation filmmaker who worked for the studios at Columbia at the time. Yeah, and he was the guy who he was a great he was a great ring man, a great marketer of his movies. The, the guy who would make a film and then in the print ads it would say, "We've hired a nurse." To show up to every screening of this film, so if anybody faints, there'll be a nurse it's there fantastic. to revive you. Great and he stuff. would create he would create these great carnival atmospheres yeah. for his movies. And Castle was the best. So it does have historical significance. It does have a great premise, although it's not a great movie. Uh, I saw what you did. And then finally, at least for me, we have uh, Bad Influence. Now, Bad Influence is with um, Rob Lowe and James Spader, and it sort of came out during that. You know, less than zero kind of uh, 80s, you know, people are looking at like cocaine was the drug of choice back then. And uh, there was a lot of uh, movies like um, Apartment Zero or, again, Less Than Zero and Bad Influence. And and it was all about like, you know, people sort of diving into this, like big city cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. success stories where these kids would get really – Really successful and kind of rich and, at a young age, and they'd and wind then up they'd just, reap the the, the 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 pay have to pay the price. They have to pay the they did good. They just devolved into some coke lifestyle and some lifestyle like hookers and coke and whatever, and then they have to pay the price. And Bad Influence was one of those films. Uh, the only reason why this film was any good was because it was directed by Curtis Hansen. So it was written by David Kep, but directed by Hansen. And Curtis Hansen is very good much interested. He's very much interested in the, in, in the characters, whereas a lot of um, directors would not be. So that's why Bad Influence works as well as it does. All right, and here's wrapping out the rest of the olive titles. And this is the cream of the crop here. Uh, Telly Savalas had uh, primarily known for his television career later on uh, with Kojak and whatnot, but Telly Savalas made some awfully cool movies. And one of them was as late as 1975, and Killer Force is one of those movies. And uh, O.J. Simpson's presence in this will probably be a turnoff to a lot of people. But what a great cast. What a, what a really, really cool... Uh, kind of tough guy squad movie. There were a lot of these, you know, Dirty Dozen and, uh, uh, you know, the uh, in- the original Inglorious Bastards. There were a lot of these these kinds of movies at the time. Uh, and 1975 is a little late for these, especially for Val Guest, who directed this, who was primarily known for, uh, for you know, genre films in the 1960s. But um, somehow it all comes together, and uh, it, is a, it is a really cool throwback uh, movie here with uh, Telly Savalas and, uh, you know, Christopher Lee, uh, O.J. Simpson, um, really uh, Peter Fonda. This is a, you know, a, a really super cool cast. And the idea basically is that uh, Telly Savalas leads a uh, – uh, he's a security officer for a diamond syndicate. And uh, the whole thing gets into, uh, you know, the smuggling of diamonds and, and, you know, smuggling them in and out of South Africa. It's really, a, it's really kind of a cool movie and a little bit ahead of its time. Here's the other stuff that we're getting from Olive this month. Um, French Postcards. Fascinating, interesting movie. Not a great film by any means, but an interesting movie where Willard Huck and uh, Gloria Katz, who are uh, old friends and colleagues of uh, George Lucas... And who wrote uh, American Graffiti. They're basically trying to do an American Graffiti Part 2 that takes place with a bunch of American students at a French school, an Institute of French Studies. And um, 
It's not enough to erase the fact that they went on to do Howard the Duck, but it is interesting that they're sort of trying to replicate the chemistry and uh, that whole sense of camaraderie. And there's some really good performances here. Deborah Winger and Mandy Patinkin. Um, definitely worth checking out. Uh, it's, an, it's a curious little blast from the past. Uh, the Whoopi Boys with Michael O'Keefe and Paul Rodriguez. Uh, really interesting, only because Paul Rodriguez, this is sort of him at his, at his best. This is when Paul, Paul Rodriguez was a thing in 1986. Uh, Michael O'Keefe is kind of along for the ride. Not the greatest pairing in the world, but a kind of a quintessential 80s comedy, well-directed by John Byram, who should have had a better career. Uh, a terrific film is The Sum of Us with Jack Thompson and Russell Crowe before Russell Crowe really blew up huge as a star. This is about a tough Aussie dad trying to sort of be as, as accepting as he possibly can over the fact that his son is gay. This film is so funny and so charming and so sweet and so wonderful, and it's not the kind of part you would ever imagine Russell Crowe playing. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. My favorite line in this, up your bum. It's a great, great movie. Uh, Iphigenia with Irene Pappas is a Michael Kakayanis film. Michael Kakayanis, who did um, Zorba the Greek, also with Irene Pappas. Uh, this is essentially his Oscar-nominated 1977 uh, incredibly cool adaptation of um, Euripides with uh, Costa Kazakos as Agamemnon and uh, Tatiana Papasmoku as Iphigenia, uh, really a great film, probably the best adaptation of Euripides, which is infrequently made into, onto, into movies, but has been several times. And then lastly, the wonderful and delightful late career success of Clark Gable in The King and Four Queens, which is just terrific. Clark Gable uh, in one of his best parts uh, as this amazing Western con man, 1956, um, a brisk, wonderfully written, incredibly well-directed movie by Raoul Walsh that is just to die for. Clark Gable and Eleanor Parker have never been better. You've got to check this out. This is, uh, this is the, the gold release this month from Olive. So, great bunch of movies. All right, Mark, I think that does it for the show. That does it for the show. We are done. See I, you next week. See you next week. See you next week.